Hey y'all, this is Ledge, and before we get to this episode, I want to tell you a quick story. I remember when we were contacted by one of the top video fitness apps in the United States, and they were doing a total rebuild, and they wanted to do that with our engineers. So we set that up, and we've been at it for two years with 10 different team members in every possible skill set from design to product management to scrum master to development. And it's been a really exciting journey where we are completely in charge of staffing that entire team for them. That's not a common scenario, but it just gives you an idea of the reach that we can bring to the table, you know, time and time again for mobile apps and for web apps and for design. And I think that's really one of the strengths of the huge bench of talent that we bring to the table. Now for our episode. This is the Frontier Podcast powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter at The Frontier Pod. Madison, it's great to have you on, man. Thank you for joining. Thanks, Ledge. It's a pleasure to be here. So glad we're able to find a time to work. Absolutely. So if you don't mind, if the audience uh, could get to know you a little bit, you know, kind of throw us a little bio of uh, who you are, you know, kind of where you're coming from and, and what you're working on these days. Absolutely. So I came up here to Massachusetts about six years ago to attend college at a tiny little school called Olin College of Engineering. Um, and while I was there, I met some friends with an interest in machine learning. And uh, lo and behold, a couple of years later, we dropped out to found a company that we called Indico Data Solutions. Um, and the last six years have been kind of a wild ride as we um, kind of learned to grow and adapt to this very rapidly changing field. Um, it's been a fun time. It's been an emotional roller coaster. So I, I no doubt. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Um, everybody sees the, you know, the awesome part of, of startup life, you know, but then you realize you're like, wow, I just dropped out of college and we're all in a little room together and now we need to build a company. I'm sure it can be a, a little nerve wracking, uh, but here you are. And I see on the Indico site, you know, a bunch of badass clients and, you know, things seem to be going really well there. And, and now I think, you know, so you're in charge of what the machine learning and, and data science sort of area of the company, but yeah, what's that evolution? been like tell the story a little bit yeah it's uh it's good to see us here six years later 20 people and growing so uh life is good on that front um i actually started mm -hmm. off as the cto of the company and ran the back-end engineering team for a while um until about two and a half years ago when i started to run the machine learning team and we brought on a fellow named don to run our engineering team so um it's been kind of cool to cross between those two different camps and see some of the stuff that works well for engineering and some of the stuff that works well for machine learning and see where they intersect. Um, but in terms of what Indico actually does, we are a intelligent process automation product. So we find the boring bits of people's jobs and we automate them using machine learning tech so that people can focus on the tasks that actually require human ingenuity, um, the stuff that people should actually be required for, and we can take care of the rest. So in particular, we focus on analytics on top of text and image data. And we work with subject matter experts within companies to build custom models to solve custom problems. Um, because mm -hmm. no model is one size fits all and no problem is one size fits all. You've said that a few times. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, give me some examples there of, of uh, I mean, I love that the difference between, you know, the back end 
engineering and machine learning, you know, is, is that, I don't know, human and disposition and, you know, education and just the, the manner of work, having sat in both seats, you know, what have you learned there? I think there's a lot of people, particularly in the audience that maybe are interested in transition mm-hmm. like that. Absolutely. Um, well, there are a couple different areas where some traditional software engineering practices start to break down. Um, for instance, project planning becomes quite a lot harder when you're not trying to just plan a software product, but you're also um, trying to deal with the complexity that comes from uh, having to manage a data pipeline and also having to manage machine learning model development. Um, it becomes much harder to do time estimation and to understand how long any given task is going to take. Um, but I think actually, um, although there are quite a few areas where machine learning engineering is different than typical software engineering, there are quite a few areas where it's very similar. Um, and similar code review practices, similar uh, testing practices are still useful to apply in a machine learning context. So I think one of the big mistakes that many companies make is treating machine learning like research. Um, mm-hmm there's definitely a distinction between machine learning research and machine learning engineering. And as a startup with 20 people, machine learning engineering is valuable. Machine learning research is not. We very- Yeah, talk more about that. I hear a lot about people having, you know, this research lab kind of mindset, you know, totally separate from engineering. So that's really interesting to, to hear you say that. And I mean, how did you arrive at that conclusion? Uh, well, for one, we ran a research lab for quite a few years, so um, one of the easiest ways to uh, to learn something, or one of the hardest ways to learn something, is to make a mistake yourself, so um, <laughs> hard knocks, I guess. Um, but in general, our, our thesis is that we should not be trying to develop the next big machine learning algorithm. Um, academia is rampant with new papers. Um, there's so much tech coming out of the door um, from academia that we feel like our job is instead to understand what's relevant to industry, filter down uh, the signal from all this noise, and become masters of application um, rather than uh, research scientists. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, how do you how do you do that? You know, the the fire hose of of lab generated, you know, maybe useful things. Uh, I have to imagine there's probably been a exponential increase in papers, you know, about this, this kind of stuff. Uh, how do you know what's useful? Uh, yeah, there definitely has been something that looks rather like an exponential increase in the number of papers submitted to the major machine learning conferences every year. So if you look at the, the graph over time of papers submitted to conferences like iClear, NERIPS, it's uh, something like a 10x growth over the course of the past five years, which is frankly kind of absurd. Um, I think you start to develop some intuition over time, what is and what is not relevant. If I were to try and quantify uh, some of the signals that we look at to tell whether or not a paper is useful, uh, we look for a model being applied across a wide variety of tasks, so some measure of how general a machine learning approach is. We look for um, indicators that maybe this only worked at a small scale. We look for measures of performance, how quickly the model is able to infer on new data points how long training takes. Um, all of these are a signal that we incorporate in a decision as to whether or not some academic research is relevant to us. I mean, how much time goes into that? I mean, you know, there are like an insane number of, of papers and I've read 
papers and it takes a while. And so, I mean, are you, is this like, you know, grab the journal and kind of skim through and you just have developed the uh, internal capabilities to kind of go, mm, yes, no, maybe. I mean, that's, it's still a lot of time. I mean, this must consume human hours. Yeah, I think a lot of it is, you know, my commute to and from work, hop on the track, <laughs> you, you read machine learning Twitter, you, uh, I often use a tool called, called Archive Sanity, built by uh, Andre Carpathy, you know, a great fellow. He's, uh, I think he's the VP of Tesla right now, but he's has a background in machine learning. I'm an excellent fellow. Um, and yeah, I mean, part of it's signal from other folks. Uh, part of it's just gradually over time, uh, learning the people to follow for your given industry. And uh, Sure, yeah. sure. And, you know, talk about maybe the practicality of, of the work. Cause I think, you know, you are in a space that is, is growing so much and there's like an incredible amount of hype and, you know, a lot of companies that are just going to go, Oh shoot, we better call this AI because, you know, we're, we're not going to be relevant, you know, soon, but it, it's really not, it's not machine learning or, you know, what have you. Um, what makes, I mean, y'all have in six years, right, sort of stood out in the space and been successful and built a, you know, a client roster where you're actually making material business difference. So, I mean, what what was that about? Because I think that the people really want to achieve that, but aren't sure how to go about it. Um, I think part of it is a culture of being relentlessly empirical. Um, I would say that in general, we are engineers rather than researchers, which means we um, take a very systematic approach to uh, measuring and understanding the, the influence of our, uh, we take a very data-driven approach uh, to, to our process. So rather than kind of trying to develop a conceptual understanding and to hypothesize about how well uh, a new approach might work. We simply test it. So we test and we iterate and we build and we start simple and we build out complexity. So um, that's kind of the engineering mindset. Um, I think part of that so is you need, you need a lot of data, right, to to be able to test. And I would imagine you even have to sort of back test based on data that that you know came up with a, a certain kind of result and see if you were right. Is is that part of the the methodology from a client just collect an enormous amount of data and you know start to model around it uh, for sure we try and collect data that more closely mimics um, problems we see in industry rather than problems that academia has identified as useful um, right certain characteristics of data that you don't see very often in academia that happen all the time in industry that you need to account for one of the most simple is just class imbalance so often in an academic problem you might find that every given class has the same count that occurs the same number of times. And one of the most popular data sets is a data set called ImageNet, which is just a collection of images and labels. Um, okay. Leave each image occurs a thousand times or each class of image occurs a thousand times or it, they occur in relatively the same frequency. In industry, oftentimes you have dramatic class imbalance. So you might see one class three times and another class 1500 times and you need to build models that account for this difference. And step one of building models that account for this difference is simply testing on data sets that have these same characteristics. 
Okay, so just let me break that down for my uh, my simple brain then saying so basically as academics a lot of folks have developed test data sets that everybody can kind of test against in order to kind of get some baseline results and see because you already know the answer uh, but what you're saying is that you know we're going to collect the chaotic um, actual data from the field and see that in fact even if it works against the the sample it's not going to work against the real world because the real world doesn't uh, behave to the the sample data. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, the world isn't made of spherical cows, right? To use a physics analogy, so <laughs> real world data has different characteristics than academic data. Um, there's also kind of a problem with industry wide overfitting. Overfitting is a term where you see that your machine learning model. Um, performs well on a given data set, but doesn't generalize to a similar problem. So it started to take advantage of features or signals that might be very specific to the given problem you're looking at. Um, this happens at an industry level where you'll see a lot of research thrown at the same problem. And over time, models get more and more complex and convoluted to take advantage of things that are increasingly and increasingly more specific. Okay. Uh, and this is kind of detrimental for making industry progress because you're no longer uh, building general solutions. You're building very, very specific solutions to solve a very, very specific problem. Now, wouldn't a particular client, in the way you guys work, I mean, they would want a specific answer for just you know their problem. So, are you are you faced with having to, you know, um, sort of build solutions that you know kind of suit only one set of data that that don't generalize well across the i don't know a particular industry like i'm sure there's a million examples of you know process automation that mm-hmm. um every company does things in their own particular way and a larger data set is always going to come from a company that's been doing their particular way a whole very long time that increasingly deviates from the way that a you know another company might do it in that space so do you lose that generalization just by working with any particular client um, so we very much do believe that everyone's problems are specific to their company. Um, mm. But there is some generic information that can be reused across companies. So we focus a lot on a field of machine learning called transfer learning. And in transfer learning, you typically break up a problem into two parts. You have something we refer to as the base model and something that you refer to as the target model. The base model is something that's shared across all tasks. Uh, mm-hmm. And it codes very general knowledge about the world. Um, and the target model is something that's very specific to a given task, and it's designed to just be trained on a particular client's data. So by splitting hey, up this that run problem, like sequentially, then like is that how that works? That you know you sort of would always apply your general model and then refine the results with the the secondary. Uh, yeah, you can kind of think about it that way. So. Okay. Typically, you train your base model ahead of time, um, and that's done on our own data set. And then you train your target model, and you refine the base model on a specific data set. And by breaking it up this way, you can take advantage of the knowledge you've learned or the knowledge you've acquired in solving this base task and reuse that to solve a very specific task. Um, One analogy you might use is the way in which humans uh, learn uh, to understand, you know, 
what we what comes into our eyes, you know, how we learn to see and identify objects. So like classification, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So let's let's talk about object classification for a, for a second. Um, it's very difficult for a newborn baby to learn to understand what a tiger is because that baby has no past experience to draw from in order to make sense of the world around them. Um, every stimulus they get is new. But if you have a toddler who has knowledge of what stripes are, what the color orange is, what size is, what cats are, this child re-represents new things that it sees. And in terms of these existing concepts that it has knowledge of, and in doing so, you can make the problem of learning to understand a new object category dramatically simpler. So if instead looking at, uh, instead of looking at a stream of raw pixels, you have a stream of concepts like large orange striped cat, you can reapply those existing concepts to new problems and learn right. more. And so those existing constructs then would be useful to start from, you know, yes. kind of in all right. concepts. You, you know, it's interesting that how children learn thing comes up all the time, you know, in this space. And it makes me want to ask, and maybe this is, maybe this doesn't work, you know, kind of at all, but do y'all ever think about like, you know, our general model is, I don't know, you know, it's like a three-year-old or, you know, like, where does it, where have we gotten, you know, how close, how far along are we? Cause it, it feels, it feels nascent. Uh, but you know, like how, how smarter are these tools that we're, you know, developing at this point, what's, what's possible? I would say it's hard to draw a fair comparison mm -hmm. because we see that machine learning models are very, very effective at very specific tasks where right. we have a large amount of training data for these tasks and they're very ineffective at generically solving problems. Um, so machine learning models only work within the domain they're trained on. And typically these domains have to be quite narrow in for order for a machine learning model to be effective. Um, I guess my secondary answer to this, this question is that we try very, very hard, um, other than the child learning to see analogy, to not draw comparisons between machine learning models and people. Um, mm -hmm. Even the term artificial intelligence, I think, is a little bit um, guilty of this and that people uh, a layperson might not have a good understanding of what a machine learning model is capable of. And when we use terms like artificial intelligence and we draw comparisons to human intelligence, it's very easy for us to overestimate the capability of this technology and to bring up visions of, you know, uh, robotic futures and human automata, automatons and, you know, bad right. side movies. Um, and this kind of does a disservice to the entire industry as a whole, I think. Right. Because it takes the eye off the the science of uh, really what we're trying to do and the, the problems that you can actually solve. I, yeah. I'm sure you can't talk about client stuff, but I'd be interested to hear some real use cases. You know, places that like, you know, all all of us business minds maybe can can put our heads mm -hmm. around and go, wow, you know, I I really wish we could automate some of these like massively boring things. Tell some stories from the field. I I love that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so. We currently are attacking a large range of use cases. We do everything from identifying whether or not dumpsters are open or closed to helping out uh, teams do legal review of insurance documents and comparing uh, legal terminology across different states, across different policies, 
to uh, confirming stock trades in an automated fashion. So uh, there are quite a lot of useful verticals for a machine and learning. This would, I mean, this would all be stuff that literally a person would have to sit and do. And so the, the core objective then is to prevent the person from having to do this, like, you know, read these 100 page legal documents and actually look for this stuff. Yeah, it's the sad reality is that a lot of people with uh, college degrees, a lot of people with masters or even, uh, you know, uh, business degrees are doing quite simple work for a large portion of their job. It's true across the board. And we just believe very strongly that humans should be focused on doing the stuff that we cannot automate. And as the stuff that we can automate grows, uh, they should be responsible for less and less, but more and more interesting problems. And when you guys, you know, I don't know, you sit around the whiteboard or, you know, maybe it's after work and the beers are open, like talk about that, you know, that vision. Like, I don't know. I just like to ask people, put your futurist hat on, you know, especially in this space. I mean, you really, do you talk a lot about, you know, hey, we're, we're actually materially making the, the business or professional life better. And where, where do you see that going in the next couple of years? It's hmm. a good question. Uh, I would say that we very much want to compete against tired, uncaffeinated, bored human beings. Uh, <laughs> and that we want to improve people's quality of life by enabling them to focus on more interesting problems. Um, and ideally make work environments more enjoyable if you're actually working on something that you feel uh, your skills are being used for as opposed to doing some mundane work. So, uh, and so you, you come uh, into a client, you start thinking about like, how, how do the boring things get, you know, identified? Do you have to precede these ideas or do people come in and say, you know, I have people trying to figure out if dumpsters are open. Um, what can you guys do for me? I mean, how does this even come around? So much of us are used to work that just has to be done. Um, I imagine there's like a level of training that needs to happen to go, hey, you know, ask the question of what things are remarkably boring and, uh, you know, connecting those dots out in the space. There's a lot of strategic thinking that happens there. Mm -hmm. I would say that at a lot of clients we we speak with, step one is just identifying the right problems to solve. Um, mm -hmm. There are definitely exceptions where teams already have a good understanding of what is and is not possible using machine learning tech. And they already have a good understanding of how their internal processes work. But more often than not, step one is uh, pretty much an interview. So yeah. what does your internal process look like? Um, which bits take the most time? How much time does each step in the process take? Which bits do you think are error prone? Um, and simply setting up an organization to measure and understand the uh, time it takes to solve each step, how accurate humans are at solving each step is necessary before you even get started with implementing a machine learning solution. And that's got to be a tremendous amount of work and time right there. Um, I don't imagine you probably walk into a whole lot of orgs that have systems tight enough to know those things. I bet they wonder those things, but uh, the data-driven org, you know, is sort of, uh, I don't know, talking about was it the Gartner, you know, sort of data maturity model, right? <laughs> like there's a lot of ones out there. You know? Um, and I hope that changes in the future, but the reality is that right now that's a, that's a consulting process for us. 
Um, yeah. And that's a big part of the value that Indico brings to the table is simply uh, having a history of going into organizations and understanding their process and identifying the part, portions that are your candidates for automation. Um, ideally, that's something that every large enterprise organization brings in-house in the future. But the reality right. is there's a lot of education required before we reach that point. Sure, sure. I don't I don't know too many people that are sort of like, oh, yeah, our data maturity is this. And we've actually applied um, human effort over the last two years to kind of come to that conclusion. Most most eyes go glazed over and they go, what? You know, I don't know. We make data. It's somewhere. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a lot of consulting um, consulting work to, to get that going. I'm, I'm just I guess I'm glad there's a framework for it, you know, sort of at all, because um, we maybe aren't doing a good job, you know, training our, our folks on, on how to ask those questions, you know, and kind of uh, push from an executive standpoint, the budget necessary to even establish that level of maturity. And mm -hmm. most, most of the, I, I have to think, you know, 80% of the companies are probably ones. Um, and there's a lot of work to be done there. I'd also say that when you reach that level of maturity, you might be surprised by what you find. Um, mm -hmm. So one of the things we often see at organizations we go into is that, um, we tend to think that our processes are 100% accurate because they're handled by humans. This is very, very rarely the case, effectively never the case. Um, human accuracy is not 100%. If you ask two humans to solve the same task and you check how frequently they agree, oftentimes this might be as bad as 50% or worse, depending on the complexity of the task. So simply going in and starting to measure your processes is useful whether or not you're going to implement a machine learning solution. That's a valuable step for a business to take. Mm -hmm. And so oper operational workflows and wait times. And I um, mean, it takes me back to like operations management class. You know, you just sort of have to do this stuff no matter what and, and put the systems in place to measure lots and lots of things because you don't even know which things actually have material difference on, on the business output. Okay. And it often means that machine learning solutions are appropriate for a broader range of tasks than you might expect. 80% um, accuracy is totally viable depending on the task, especially if you implement review processes and you um, look at situations where you might ha not have full automation, but you might have workflow augmentation where a right. human machine learning model are working in conjunction. And our goal is to make a human more effective at doing their job not replace them. Right, right. Understood. Fascinating. So how often do you encounter a problem that you have not solved before, you know, when you're doing these uh, consulting projects? Is that is that pretty normal? Uh, absolutely. But thankfully, more and more we're encountering problems we have seen before. So um, just right. from a business standpoint, starting to understand what the repeatable use cases are. I feel like that's something, you know, we as uh, a largely engineering centric team did very poorly early on. Um, but now that we've brought on some folks with uh, more business acumen, uh, we're, we're starting to hit product market fit, starting to see the same kinds of concerns, the same kinds of problems come up over and over again and narrow in our product, narrow in what it is that we do to uh, be more repeatable. Yeah, it's such a common story with, you know, engineering based organizations that, you know, those uh, diversity of thought around the different disciplines and that business 
acumen is, is huge when you start to add that to your team and say, guys, it's not even like that out in the field. And so, you know, it's, it's a very meta experience because you're just like, Hey, we know a lot of things. Yeah, but that's not how it works. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and that is such the essence of a product market fit. So I'm so glad you said that. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it's altogether too easy to be tech looking for a problem rather than uh, <laughs> looking for tech. So, and I hear this conversation over and over and over again. You know, and sort of like uh, the ML, partic- particularly, you know, because cutting edge technology, just being like, oh, we want to put this everywhere, and it doesn't work everywhere. You know, and so yeah. um, finding an application, like, wow, we solved a problem nobody has. You know. <laughs> so, um, right on okay so before i let you go we have some critically important lightning round questions so i hope you're ready for this um star wars or star trek star wars <laughs> what are you reading right now uh twitter <laughs> <laughs> what can't you live without uh rock climbing shoes nice nice all right uh what is the last thing that you googled for work uh, adapters for or actually probably a Sesame Street character. Sesame Street characters are are uh, hot right now in the machine learning industry. <laughs> what so, really? Why? Uh, uh, for whatever reason, machine learning papers are often named after Sesame Street characters. Uh, <laughs> and, and so we have That's Bird. Right we have Big Bird. Yeah. And marketing's <laughs> going to make a note about running ads against Big Bird now. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I don't know if you're a fan of The Office, uh, but I am. So it's been a while. So. All right. All right. Well, there's a classic episode where Jim is, you know, messing with Dwight. Right. And he's mm-hmm. sending him faxes from future Dwight. And he's saying stuff, you know, like, oh, the coffee is poisoned or, you know, whatever. Uh, Dwight thinks he's getting messages from the future of himself. And uh, so I like to ask people, so if I handed you, you know, a, a piece of paper and one of those big, thick, black sharpies and you could write a message and you know fax it back to yourself you know in the past uh what would you what would you write on there i would say start with the problem and work towards the solution don't start with the solution and work towards the problem why is uh, that better than complex and uh yeah i think those are the two big lessons i've learned over the past six years where did that come from? Uh, a year or two overcomplicating solutions. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's simpler than you think. As always. So. Or Occam's razor. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Madison, this has been fun, man. Thank you for uh, joining. Love the insights. And uh, we look forward to more in the future. Likewise. Take care. Enjoy the rest of your Wednesday. Or Tuesday. Oh, wow. It's been a long week. <laughs> thanks for listening to the frontier podcast produced by gun.io we're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers if you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us head over to gun.io slash podcast to get in touch and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast, produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast, and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.